Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Like it or not, we are stuck online. Digital life is a reflection and extension of life offline, if we can even talk about life offline anymore. It's not like the old days of logging on and logging off. We are constantly connected. Our social, political, and economic lives are bound up with the digital world, and so is our public sphere. And much of that world is controlled by a handful of very wealthy, very powerful tech giants. Digital space presents several significant challenges to the public good. Dis and misinformation, domestic and foreign, toxicity by way of name-calling, hate speech and bullying, economic exploitation, asymmetrical access, class divides, doxing, hacking, even the threat of physical violence. It's pretty grim stuff. In light of these challenges, can we have a healthy digital public sphere? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Taylor Owen, Beaverbrook Chair in Media, Ethics and Communication, the founding director of the Center for Media, Technology and Democracy, and an associate professor in the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Let's start with the state of the space uh, assessment for, for social media in general. And I know there's a lot there. But we have a handful of outlets that aren't so new anymore. The sheen is off. Some are a little bit newer, but they all, they all maintain a significant user base. And I think they all have their detractors, Facebook in particular, but also Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, Reddit, and so on. Uh, so I'm interested in how these spaces serve or don't serve as a public sphere aggregator in the first place. I mean, do we look at yeah. any of them and say, oh, this is a good space for a public sphere conversation? <laughs> I mean, that's a really nice way of framing it because um, in many ways and at certain moments, some of them have become, I think, meaningful public spaces. And or at least that's how we've, as citizens, have participated in them. We've assumed that they were akin to public spaces um, and have not always been, I think, fully um, aware of or taking into consideration the private nature of the incentives within them. And that disconnect between us thinking they're public and thinking these are public goods and there's just public sphere broadly defined that we're as citizens having civic discourse within, the disconnect between that assumption and the norms that come with that and around our behavior in these spaces and the private nature of the incentives of how these systems are designed, what speech they prioritize, what kind of behavior they allow and don't allow is where a lot of the challenges have stemmed from in that disconnect. And so I think, look, I, I think some of them are more like public spheres than others. I think it's there's reasons why Twitter, probably more than any of them, gets considered a, a public sphere um, because it is more open. You don't have to have sort of a one-to-one -one relationship where both people sign it opt in to following each other or into that dynamic. It's much more of a broadcast space where... Anyone can say anything and be heard by anyone um, within their within the bounds of their rules. Um, and then you go down the line, and some are much less public sphere-like. I mean, yeah, Instagram man. is much less of a public sphere, and Snapchat even less so. Um, and TikTok is kind of a very different beast. Facebook is is many things because it is many different social media products and communication products all the time. So kind of a long-winded way of saying that, like, yeah, the question is right. Are these public spheres, should we consider them 
Um, and do they even function like that? Or are there other sort of things we should do to incentivize a different kind of behavior from them? I want to pick up on this question of incentives because uh, you you mentioned we, we treat these things as public things, but they're fundamentally private, which is in the sense of of of, of market driven. Yeah, they aren't collectively owned, even if they are public enterprises that are traded on the stock exchange. It's different than being a public thing or or, or a public good. Yeah, uh, they are fundamentally businesses driven by business incentives. They want to continue to exist. They want to continue to create a profit. And they want to maximize shareholder revenue or, or owner revenue, uh, as, as the case may be. So the incentives are very different than if you were to design a digital public sphere to be your outlet, to be a specific digital public sphere outlet, right? We don't have those really, uh, in, in, for the most part. Um, how do those... And we maybe never have, right? No, I, I wouldn't think so. New newspapers were not uh, open public things. I mean... Arguably, certain publicly funded media operated in sort of more with a more of sort of a public mandate, um, but very much driven by private incentives and certain regulatory restrictions and all the ways we constrained that media behavior. Um, so, no, it's never really existed. Um, uh -huh. The fact we thought these were going to be it um, proved particularly misplaced, but it's not like they were just following a line of, of, uh, of precedent there. No, and I like to remind people that, you know, looking back on the history of journalism, there might have been a period of a few decades where things were pretty good, but but for the most part, the history of journalism is pretty, pretty dodgy. You know, we are not that far removed from the heyday of yellow journalism. We're not far that, that far removed from, from newspaper barons starting the Spanish-American war to sell newspapers, right? I mean, it, um, no, and, and people, I mean, there's the trope within journalism that somehow there's some sort of desire for objectivity. Yeah. I mean, that is also a function of market dynamics. The, the reason we have centrist, objective, s seemingly objective journalism is because newspapers were competing for large municipal markets and to reach right. enough audience at that time period using the business model they had, which was selling subscriptions and advertisers to broad user bases, you needed to be, have a tone and a style that was acceptable to as many people as possible. So we got our sort of norms of journalism from that. So even the thing we hold up <laughs> right. as like right. the North Star here, right? Like fact-based reported content is itself a function of the market dynamic that drove journalism for a hundred years up until the internet. And, and what's um, the new what's the new incentive now? I mean, is it to I mean, there the fundamental incentive seems to be keep eyeballs on the page as long as possible to to sell ads and collect data. Is, is I mean, so that, it depends is what that we're talking about the incentive of journalism of journalistic uh, of organizations the, or the journalists of platforms uh, of platforms the, themselves. So, of pla if we're talking social platforms, then certainly the core, um, the core financial incentive is how to monetize the data produced by the people using your platform. Now that takes all sorts of different forms. Um, it could be um, keeping them on the site for long enough so that you can show them more ads. It could, so that could be one incentive. Another incentive could be using the data about our behavior, both on these platforms and off, because we forget often that these platforms collect massive amounts of data of our behavior off their platform, right? They add to the data they have about our direct behavior on their platform. Using those data 
to allow others to target our behavior more effectively. So it's kind of two sides to that, right? Keeping us on the site for long enough, longer so we see more ads and more data can be collected, and then using those data to make those ads more effective and more targeted. And that's proven to be, at least for a decade, the core financial model of these large social platforms. Mm -hmm. Now, as we sort of evolve, I think, to a certain degree away from that model, which we can talk about why that's happening, but I, I think it's a real phenomenon, um, new business models and new financial incentives are going to emerge. Um, the real question is to what degree and how do those financial incentives, whatever they may be, whatever the next business model is, how does that change the character of our public sphere? Because it does. It it determines. Yeah. It doesn't just shape it. It determines it. Yeah. And that should be something in a democratic society. I think that we should care about, like what private incentives are shaping the type and quality and character of information we receive in our democratic society. Like that's yeah. an important question, and that's at the root of this. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me we have a giant surveillance apparatus, uh, capitalist surveillance apparatus, to which we append in a public sphere. <laughs> I mean, well. It may actually be the other way, like the causal or the, the the sequencing there is important, right? Because sure. Because they actually built the public sphere before they built the surveillance and data collection sure. apparatus, sure. Which they built before they figured out how to monetize it, right? So Facebook the monetization existed. was it the goal, though, right? It was always it, the, the monetization was always the was the plan, ultimate, right? Ultimate, ultimately, although I think. As you see, like these technologies are not static, right? Facebook now is different than Facebook last week, which is very different than Facebook to eight years ago. And as different monetary strategies and data collection opportunities have emerged, the actual design and functioning of the system itself has changed. And I would argue in somewhat in, in sort of chasing that financial model. But for like, just take for example, like how. Um, Facebook's newsfeed might have functioned like before they figured out how to how to monetize the data of their users. Newsfeeds were things we posted and really just our friends could see. Yeah. Content couldn't go viral across the system. We couldn't re reshare other people's content. We didn't have trending topics which pulled content out and showed it to everybody. Right, you couldn't buy your way into people's feeds. So all of those things that I would argue have caused a deterioration of the quality of information in our public sphere are a function of chasing that business model and design decisions intended to maximize the financial gain. And so it has evolved over time and that evolution is really important. It's also really important because if you think something's wrong in that design, you can actually do things to change the incentives of it. So if we want to make the system better or healthier or the ecosystem healthier, there are things I think we can do to incentivize the design to function in a different way. When you, when you say you, I want to get into two senses of the you there, one the state sense and one the user sense. So I want to start with the state sense. Mm. Um, and, and I want to use Google as an example. Uh, we know that the state may want to try to push regulatory regimes and policies onto to outlets. People may want them, they may not want them, but the states have their own interests. We've seen the European Union do this with, with the general data protection rule and so on and so forth. But we also see a hard pushback from from companies who say, well, then we're just, we're, we're out, we're going to peace out, or okay. we're going to limit this service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We see Google right now 
running a kind of quote unquote test on a small percentage of users in Canada, not showing them news. Yeah. Um, so, you know, to what degree do we, is it a battle between the state who wants to regulate and the tech platform who doesn't want to be regulated or doesn't want to be regulated in particular ways with the public sphere con in the, in the, in the middle? Yeah. I mean, I think that that is in many ways the correct framing. The companies have, I mean, they have very different approaches in different jurisdictions to different policy initiatives. Right. So this isn't sort of a, we don't want to be regulated in any way whatsoever versus the state who has one simple, one way they want to regulate. Like it's uh -huh. not binary in that sense. So like the, the News Act that you're referring to, C-18, so the Online News Act, um, in Canada has elicited a very particular response from Google and soon Facebook um, for a very particular set of reasons, in my view. So the Australian government did something similar, right, where they force companies into binding arbitration with um, publishers for some sort of licensing of their content used on their platforms, right? It's the broad principle. Now, I think Google has it is behaving the way they have here in response to that regulatory action, not because they care about Canada. Like, who cares for a country <laughs> with 35 million people? Does? Like, at the end of the day, these deals are not going to cost them a huge amount of money in Canada. But they are acutely aware that there's eight to 10 other countries in the world all thinking about a similar model. Yeah. And if it gets done in Canada, I guarantee to you the model we develop is going to be iterated on and rolled out in a number of other countries over the next year. So they are they are very concerned about that, right, of that tipping point. So in the case of that bill and their reaction to that bill, it's leading to a fairly strong reaction, right, which is threatening to turn off news, and Facebook has said they'll do the same, and it'll be a standoff and a lot of bluster, and we'll see how that plays out. Now, that's very different than their response, and I think what their response will be to online harms regulation that the government is also developing, which is much more in line with what the EU has already done. So it means the company's response to that Canadian governance regime has to take into context that they are already having to comply with, in this case, the Digital Services Act in the EU. So they can't come and say to Canada, we can't possibly implement these measures when they're already doing them in the EU because the EU is a big enough market that they basically can't, they can't threaten to leave the EU really in any meaningful way. It's just too big and too valuable a market. So again, that's sort of a convoluted way of saying, yes, it is a tension between these companies and the state, like no question about it. But we're seeing that tension play out and I think a more sophisticated way now than we were five or six years ago, uh -huh. where it was just all versus nothing. We're going to regulate you, the state saying, company saying we're too big and complicated to regulate. That was the battle line. Now it's like, okay, how are you going to regulate it? What's the consequence of you regulating us that way? What's the spillover effect in other markets? What's the absolute cost to us for compliance? How does that position us against our competitors in compliance? Right? So there's in many ways, it's a more interesting policy conversation because it's much more sophisticated, but it means you have to look by measure, by country, um, on how that trade-off is going to play out. Because the this is, 
these platforms have become such an integral part of the public sphere and public conversations, how people get their news, it's how people share their news, it's how, and often sometimes it acts as a, as a, a public emergency broadcast system for people. Totally, yeah. It's where debates are initiated and settled. It's where policies are worked out in some some general sense. Um, you know, is there an argument then to say, well, geez, maybe we should be operating as a block, for instance, in North America, where Canada isn't, you know, thirty five or thirty eight million people, but we have a North American block of five hundred million between the Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Yeah, that 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 block negotiates with these folks a little bit like the EU did. Uh, because then, then they've got a, you've got a care. I, I'd imagine by the time you hit five hundred million users yeah. compared to thirty-five million users, but I mean that's presumably much more complicated. But absolutely, I just don't think. Yes, I think we should be right. We should be looking for some degree of sort of policy interoperability between jurisdictions. We're not going to come up with these are part of the challenge with some of these regulations is they're very domestically, nationally determined, right? So how we speech laws, for example. <laughs> are by definition nationally determined. Like we are not going to have the same speech laws as Germany. In Germany, no. it's illegal to be a Nazi. Um, in for the United States, it's like <laughs> being a Nazi is a test case for the First Amendment, right? Yeah. Like yeah. these things are in incompatible in uh -huh. terms of that being said, um, I think there are there are ways we can look to regulate and demands we can put on the companies as democratic societies that are broadly in alignment with one another and put similar obligations on the companies themselves. I don't think the U.S. is our is our most likely partner in this in the near term. They're just, for, for a whole host of reasons you know better <laughs> than why, they are not a particularly well-functioning democracy at the moment, and that includes their attempts to regulate these companies. They also have the added challenge of these companies being American. And yeah, right. It, they're just... There is a different incentive structure to curtailing their growth. Um, the exception here is California and the um, the FTC. Americans happen to care a lot about free markets and markets functioning efficiently. Therefore, they care about competition policy in a way most other democracies don't. And so they will crack down on anti-competitive behavior, I think. But that's different than the sort of content regulation stuff we're talking about. No, as incidentally, we were also very on our end, very poor at at breaking down oligopolies and monopolies, right? It, immensely, and that's probably that's a conversation not... for a whole other. Oh, we had it discussion, <laughs> right? And you, I'm sure you've had it many times. Yeah. And there's and it's it's one that I think um, we are about to have finally in a more significant way. I would bet through this competition review that's going to happen. Um, we do for various particular national and economic. Um, interests put sort of certain types of i think corporate behavior differently prioritize it over over pure competition like in the, in the us they might but back to your block question yes we absolutely need to be working in alignment with other democratic countries but i don't think it's going to be the us i think it's going to be making sure we're compliant with european regulation and perhaps most interestingly I think, aligning ourselves with a group of non-European democratic countries who are right. all stepping in individually into this space. So Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, South Korea, um, in, some, in some respects, Brazil. There's some large non-European, non-EU, I mean, the UK to us, there, I guess, too now, um, non-EU 
uh, democratic countries that are not also not the U.S. that are all struggling with what this regulatory regime looks like. Yeah. And none of whom have enough market power to really force change from the companies. So alignment between them is really important. And if you put all those countries together, you got a lot of people. Yeah. Right? You're pushing a billion people in those countries. And so that has power. And what about the user end? So we've talked a little bit about states. We've talked about the companies themselves. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we, the users, are the people for whom um, the public sphere exists. Yeah. Uh, we are also the people for whom, well, in, in a sense, for whom the platforms exist. Uh, uh, we're certainly the ones that make it possible. I, get, I, I suppose you could argue it's the shareholders. Yeah. Uh, but in the sense that we are, we are integral to these things exist. You know, Google needs people searching on Google. Facebook needs people sharing their uncle's memes. You know, Twitter needs bozos like me trying to get Doug Ford as a potato trending just to prove a point, uh, which I did, by the way. I, um, I know. Just because I Kudos. wanted to point out how unbelievably stupid <laughs> the, the algorithm is. Um, and a little bit of vanity, but mostly the algorithm yeah. makes stupid things. Um, you know, do, how much power do we have? Uh, you know, obviously it's hard to coordinate you know, a user strike of these things, but is yeah. there any sense in which these these platforms are listening to the users at all? I mean, other than Elon Musk responding to individuals and saying, okay, I'll, I'll get on that. Yeah, which is not a particularly scalable <laughs> model. Um, no. Look, I think the question of individual agency in this is difficult because yes, of course, we're all participants in this public discourse and the way we use these platforms and we choose to do so in many cases. Um, but that to me does not absolve anyone else, either on the governance side or on the company side, from any responsibility in what kinds of products they design and build, how they use our participation in these platforms for certain profit models, right? Like. Just because we opt into these systems does not mean that it's a wild west. Mm -hmm. um, and individual agency, I think, only gets us so far. So, but there's a, a real and legitimate and I think needed push for digital literacy campaigns, right? To make people smarter consumers of information in these online environments. But do we really expect everybody to be able to fact check every piece of content they see anywhere on the internet? Do we expect them to know when thousands of data points about them are being used to target a behavioral modification ad at them to slightly nudge their behavior by half a percent? Right? That's not something yeah. we can know as an individual. And it's the exact same, anal like it's analogous to other sectors of the economy in our society where we don't put all the burden on the individual to know whether their food is safe, to know where a if a pharmaceutical drug has been through adequate testing to be safe, to know that like a car was put together properly. Uh -huh. Like we do not expect that of citizens in other areas of our society. So why, because it's social media, do we all of a sudden think that the individual is singularly responsible for all the potential negative implications of the tool they're using or the product they're using. Um, basic consumer safety is an important framing here. <laughs> we demand that products be safe before they're deployed on citizens. 
in, a, in every other area of our society. So why would we not think the same way here? So yes, we have more. And look, we, we all make choices on which of these tools we use, how much we use them. Often we do so knowing they are um, not doing us any, any favors in terms of our view on the world or our mental health or our views of others or our sense of civic engagement or whatever. Um, so we do bear some responsibility there. But, how? but so do the people who design and build and profit from these systems. And there's really nowhere to hide. I mean, in a sense, uh, you know, you're often forced into these spaces. I can't tell you the number of people who say to me, I wish I could quit X, Y, or Z, but like this is how I connect to my community. This is how I connect to my family. This is how I connect to all of the di these different spaces. And so taking responsibility is part of it. But also, like, where else are you going to go? In, in some sense, it's, like, it's the only saloon in town, and, and you sort of well. And this is like the there. monopoly question, too, right? And I don't think you need to be a perfect, absolute monopoly yeah. to be fundamentally anti-competitive and yeah. have real mar dominant market share over a space. So, right? Yeah, like my son's school uses Facebook, right? So, like, do I not? And we actually don't, and we make kind of a point, and I'm that obnoxious parent who like calls them out on doing it. But like they then like email us a printout of the events, right? In this passive aggressive way, or the... whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would leave out the passive. Oh, so like, aggressive, aggressive. Under under hostile, cast a hostile witness. But uh, no, I mean, there's a cost to stepping away from some Isn't of it? these things, and it's look if you're. It's one thing to talk about adults and the costs we face on our decisions in these using these tools but imagine being a teenager in this space where all a huge part of your social interaction is happening on platforms that are out of your control the, the design and incentives are not necessarily maximizing your health and could mm -hmm. be a detriment to it right there's there the opt-out costs are even higher yeah and so surely we can at least agree on setting some parameters for what can and can't be done on these platforms for our kids, right? Mm -hmm. like that should at least be the 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 floor of this conversation. I want to pick up on the uh, on harms again and uh, bring it back to the public sphere a little bit because yeah. these are also extraordinarily toxic spaces, and it's hard to be in them without being exposed to that toxicity, and it's also hard to be in them not get exposed or being exposed to that toxicity and not start reflecting some of it yourself. I find this with me all the time. After I spent too much time, I sort of like, now it's just bare knuckle boxing, which is not how I wanted to go into it. But at the end of the day, yeah. that's where you end up. You might go into it for a picnic. You end up uh, leaving at the end of the day in Thunderdome every time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, you know, we, we wouldn't want our toasters exploding in our face. And if they did, we would recall them. And yet in social media, your to a toaster is constantly exploding in your face. Um, so the public sphere is fundamentally toxic in a scaled way that it's never been before. We don't seem to be doing any better with that either. I mean, is there any sense in which that's getting better or might get better? Or are we just accepted that's the cost of doing business? I mean, my God, I mean, my, my sincere hope is that we can develop a smart regulatory framework that minimizes that harm and forces different design decisions from the platforms to minimize the harm. Like that's... Um, what I spent a lot of time working on and thinking about is how what that what that looks like, what those regulatory interventions might be. Um, but the, your point about harm is really important important because I think for too long we've 
we've tried to measure harm on these systems or assess harm on these systems by individual pieces of content or individual actions at individual moments. So one person says something bad or racist or abusive or illegal, and we call out that piece of content and that individual at that moment and reprimand them in, in some way, right? And I think we need a much more holistic view of the harm being done. This harm happens over time, right? So we, as we are immersed in these platforms, we're exposed to things over time and in sort of a, an aggregate way. If I'm a female journalist and every time I post something on Twitter, I get a thousand negative comments, some trolling, some abusive, maybe some illegal, but probably not most of them. Um, that has a cumulative effect uh -huh. on my participation in the public sphere, on my mental health, on my ability to do my job, right? If I'm a visible minority in this country, and every time I speak out, I'm hit with a whole host of racist content, that might not be a legal speech. Each individual piece of that content might not be worth calling out or reprimanding. In a cumulative sense, over time, it shapes the character of this public sphere. Yeah. And I think that's what we're dealing with, right? And if you, and I, I feel the same way on Twitter. I've largely sort of stepped back from it because of that, because I felt like I was just getting drawn into this emotive response for every everything. And I didn't like what that was doing. And that wasn't a one-time thing. That was mm -hmm. happened over six years of high engagement on this platform. And at the end of it, I felt the way I was interacting as a citizen was counterproductive. And that requires a broader view of what the harm of this stuff is. Um, and an appreciation that the does again, go back, the way these systems are designed are incentivizing that outcome. They are, there's a reason you feel like your Twitter is conflictual because you participate in a political debate. Mm -hmm. And the way politics is incentivized on Twitter is reactionary uh, is a reactionary form of politics. It's binary and reactionary by design. And that's getting worse under Elon, frankly. Because uh -huh. um, some of the safeguards Twitter has put in, some of those guardrails have just been utterly removed. And they're maximizing for exactly that. So, like, that is a function of how the system is built. And you feeling that way is not just a fact that our politics is toxic or that you're particularly ideological or whatever uh -huh. it might be. It, true or not it's how the system is designed to and, and that's leading to this outcome and that's a problem this I, I like that point a lot because you know the structure is going to dictate function as, as i like to constantly say and uh, i might wake up in the morning and say i'm going to log on this morning as jürgen habermas yeah and they're going to have this great reason giving delivery of discussion day on Twitter. And by the end of the day, I'm Randy from South Park where he's at the ball game and looks at the other dad and they just know they're going to throw down. <laughs> and they end up with their shirts off, slinging, uh, throwing punches at one another. And I know every day I try to start as Habermas every day and as Randy from South Park. And, and so does everybody. I have a colleague who finally quit Twitter because he was at some event with his kid and just couldn't stop checking Twitter to get in some petty argument with somebody. It was like, yeah. what am I doing, right? Yeah. Like, I'm I'm not paying attention to my kid so that I can have some petty fight with someone I don't know on this platform. Like, it's just insanity, right? What we've 
cho chosen to prioritize in that model. It, it always reminds me of the sort of XKCD comic of, you know, the guy up late at night in front of his computer and his wife says, come to bed. He's like, I can't, there's someone wrong on the internet. And, and it's like <laughs> an absolute classic, but it really does speak to this of the lizard brain that's like, I know, I don't know this person. They have no impact in my life, but I have to go make sure they know they're wrong. But there's a lot of people at these companies, and this is where some of the sort of the revelation, like the, the whistleblowing documents that have come out and the leaks from these companies and what we've known from, we now know from former employees at these companies is really changing our understanding. Like this, this debate was in a very different place six or seven years ago than it is now in part because we now know how and why people inside these companies were making some of the decisions they were. And your comment about lizard brain is exactly what they were trying to maximize, right? There were people in these companies trying to figure out how to best play on that human characteristic of, of us, right? That we will have an emotional response to certain kinds of content. We will want to get angry when we're shown certain things. That anger will lead us to respond publicly against our good judgment, right? Like, that's the human instincts that were that were built in to the design of the system. Um, I, I think we should question whether we want those incentives to come back to your first question, determining the character of a of a space that is important to our civic life. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure we do. Is there an alternative? Yeah. The alternative is putting different obligations on the companies. If they right. want to operate products in our, products on Canadian citizens for like we're talking about a Canadian context. I think we need to ensure that they are um at least including the risk of their products, the potential negative effects of their products, um into the design decisions of them. And the only way we're gonna do that is through a regulatory regime. So as like tedious as it sounds, like I think this comes back to we need some sort of um regulatory regime with very specific obligations on these platforms that doesn't tell them what they can and can't say ultimately. Like, I don't think we're going to, this isn't going to be a content focused or outcome focused regime that forces them to take things down and makes determinations on what is or isn't acceptable speech, but that changes the incentives of the design of their systems that nudges that, those decisions towards positive social interaction towards um, less abuse of content, right? And away from these other incentives that I think are, are proving to have a real effect on our society. In, in the closing minutes, I, I want to talk about whether or not there are any specific measures that, that you're working on that you've seen, that you've heard of, that, that are either being implemented or considered that you think uh, have a, a serious chance of making things better? Is there anything that stands out? I try to be hopeful towards the end of this podcast because it's very important to be hopeful. I mean, I actually think, look, I've been, I have been nothing but pessimistic about this space for going on a decade. <laughs> and for a lot of that time, it's been calling out all the abuses and trying to make a case that there were harms happening here that we need to be paying attention to. And that's a very pessimistic place to be because it's a very negative conversation. Now we're at a totally different place because we have governments around the world all trying out different models for how to get a handle of this. So we're in this sort of iterative policy space where governments are showing what can and can't be done and what works and what doesn't work. So the easy thing we can do is just radically improve our data privacy laws. 
Europe did that with GDPR, as you mentioned, a number of years ago. That's probably already out of date. Um, we're now probably going to become compliant with that through um, our new data privacy bill. So like table stakes is just protect people's privacy a little bit better. So there's less data collected about us, less room for abuse of those data. Easy. The tougher thing is what to do about this, this co the content side of things, the abuse of behavior, the um, child abuse, the election interference, the disinformation campaigns, right? All this stuff that happens using those tools. And for that, very briefly, there's two different approaches you can take. One is you can use regulation or government power to address content once it's been posted. So in Germany, it is illegal to, po to be a Nazi on the internet, just like it's illegal to be a Nazi off the internet. The consequence of that is if a piece of Nazi speech appears on Facebook, it needs to be taken down. And if it's not taken down, there's a massive fine. So that's one approach is it's often called an ex post approach when something's out in the world. It's very difficult to do though, because it involves making determinations about what can and can't be said, which is a deeply fraught discussion because it touches on free speech in a really fundamental way. The other approach, and this is where I'll end on sort of a positive note, is what the DSA has done, the Digital Services Act in the EU, what the Online Safety Bill in the UK tries to do, and I think and I hope desperately is what the Canadian government will choose to do when they eventually table this Online Safety Bill that they've been working on for a couple of years now, which is what's called an ex-ante approach. It's to create a series of obligations on platforms to take the risk of, to do risk assessments on their products, to implement codes of practice, to make them safer, to make the data about how they're used transparent, and to create some sort of accountability body to hold them to all of that. And none of that is telling them what can and can't be said, or even telling them how they should design their products. All it's doing is they're saying they need to do risk assessments to see where these things could go wrong, and implement mitigation mechanisms to minimize that risk. And if they do that, and they can show that, even if something bad ends up happening, they're sort of absolved of that liability that would come with it. And it's not going to solve all our problems. It's not going to get rid of bad people on the internet. It's not going to solve the problem of racism and polarization in our society. Um, but it is going to ensure, that I think, that the design is influenced by a slightly different set of incentives than just pure um, commercial profit. And that's probably our best way in. Um, and I sure hope that's what we do here. Well, that is, that's a pretty positive note on which to end this conversation. I think we- I'm trying, I'm trying here for you. I appreciate that. And I, you know what? I think after this conversation, I'm gonna spend 30 minutes not logging onto Twitter. For 30 we'll minutes, tonight. it's going to be a very <laughs> piece. I'm just going to go watch an episode of Burn Notice without scrolling through something nice and calm <laughs> like a show about a burned spy who goes around shooting at people. It's going to be very calming. And enjoy your moment of zen. My moment of zen. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me for this conversation. I think people are really going to enjoy it. I, I certainly did. My pleasure. Anytime.
And as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jar, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. Uh, my thanks to them and my thanks to all of you, and we'll see you back here online, offline, and be online in two weeks.